Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 118 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Scott Bassett about going virtual before anyone knew what that meant. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is sponsored by Spotlight Branding, which wants you to know that having a new website designed for your law firm doesn't have to suck. Spotlight Branding prides itself on great communication, meeting deadlines, and getting results. Text the word WEBSITE to 66866 in order to receive a free website appraisal worksheet. Today's podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com slash lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. So I have some exciting news to report from the AVO Lawyeronomics conference in Las Vegas last week. Okay, what is it? Our podcast saves lives. <laughs> I heard you mention this the other day and you didn't say anything more about it. And I, I would just, I'm dying to hear what so happened. Our friend Paul Wright from Dallas, who has an estate planning firm with his twin brother, came up to me on the first night and said, Aaron, I need you to know that your podcast saved my life. <laughs> How? Uh, apparently his doctor encouraged him to uh, get more cardio in at the gym. <laughs> and his goal is to do the treadmill for 45 minutes. And our podcast, at least those episodes that reach 45 minutes, help him motivate himself to stick through the episode to hit his target exercise goal. Nice. My major takeaway of that is that if we have short episodes, people might die. Yeah, no, we better stretch a little bit more. And we like we can't have that because Paul's a good guy. <laughs> well, I think uh, the gym is one of the best places to listen to podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I listen in the car, but whatever. That's fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear that we've saved someone's life. <laughs> Thanks for listening, Paul. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, uh, in hopes that we will save someone else's life today, here's my conversation with Scott Bassett. I'm Scott Bassett. I'm a lawyer, a professor, musician, and a tech enthusiast now in my 36th year of law practice. Wow. Uh, I didn't know about the musician, so let's start with that. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, like a lot of kids growing up when I grew up, I was into playing rock and roll guitar, and I played in a rock band when I was in junior high and, and high school. Uh, we actually opened one night for Bob Seger. <laughs> nice. Well, that's, well, it wasn't nice because we only knew like three songs, and two of them were his first two regional hits, uh, Ramblin' Gamblin' Man and Heavy Music. I suppose he and, didn't want you to play his songs when opening for him. Uh, yeah, well, we didn't know that going in, and we played them. This was at an ice rink in Livonia, Michigan, suburban Detroit, and um, he gave us one of these icy stairs as we came back through the boys' locker room, um, and uh, we, we learned our lesson at that point. <laughs> but but awesome. these days, I'm a, I'm a jazz bass player, so I, I've switched from guitar to, to bass, and I've got a jazz quartet of all divorce lawyers um, uh, up in the Detroit area, and we play it 
bar fundraisers and and sometimes judicial reelection campaigns, that kind of thing, charitable things. Do you have a clever name? Yes. <laughs> we are the bear assets. <laughs> nice. So, okay, so that's that's your musical career. Tell us about your law practice. Uh, well, I graduated from University of Michigan Law School back in 81 and went right into uh, family law with a, a mid-sized uh, suburban Detroit firm, 25 lawyers at, at that time. Um, but then before too long, I went back and taught at the University of Michigan Law School um, in the child advocacy law clinic doing child welfare cases and working with students. Um, and, and we would go into court um, and sometimes try termination of parental rights cases, very serious cases um, with teams of two students under my supervision. Um, and, and I did that for a few years. And then it was uh, to legal aid. I ran legal aid, uh, the civil division in Detroit um, for a few years and then back into private practice doing family law work, which is what I've been doing since then. Um, it's, it's a fascinating area, but now I'm strictly an appellate attorney because I live more than a thousand miles from the courts I practice in. So when did you make that transition, uh, which I guess we'd call you a virtual lawyer now? Yeah, and I don't know if it even had a name back then. This was back uh, at the end of 2001. Um, my wife and I decided that that we wanted to make a change. I had been trying nothing but contested child custody cases for what seemed like forever, and I was so burned out I was crispy. And uh, so I, I took my wife to a very nice uh, restaurant and fed her a, a nice steak and lots of wine. And I said, hey, why don't we sell everything and move to Florida? She agreed. So before she sobered up, I booked the flights down here and <laughs> and we came down over, uh, uh, it was over Labor Day weekend in, in uh, 2001 and uh, found a house, uh, bought it, um, proceeded to wind things up in Michigan, put the house for sale up there. And, and on December 23rd of 2001, we pulled into our driveway of our new house in, in Bradenton, Florida. So you, you remain a Michigan licensed practitioner. Uh, but you've been living in Florida for 16 years. That is true. Uh, that's actually created some issues and some problems, um, but we can get into that. Well, I want to uh, get into that because, I, I mean, uh, being being a virtual lawyer wasn't a thing in 2001, really, or, or it was just beginning to be. So uh, I'm curious what that experience was like and kind of how, how, how it looks now versus how it looked then. Yeah, the problems kind of fell into three categories. Um, technology bar associations and clients. Um, the, the technology, I guess, was was maybe the, the toughest in the beginning, but the easiest to resolve. Uh, we didn't have electronic filing in any of the Michigan courts then. Um, so what that meant is to be an appellate attorney, of course, you're producing a lot of paper, you know, briefs of up to 50 pages, uh, appendices that could be hundreds of pages long. And I had to build in enough time into my workflow to get my briefs done, to take everything up to a copy center because I wasn't going to have a copier of that size, that capability in my house, uh, have everything copied and then overnight shipped uh, up to the courts in Michigan. So that meant building in two or three or four days um, at the end uh, to take care of all of that. Uh, and that was expensive. Um, it was expensive for my clients uh, because they typically paid the freight on that. Um, I could go through uh, two or $300 or more copying things, especially Supreme Court filings where they wanted at that time about 28 copies. Um, and, and then sometimes it would be two or $300 to ship all that paper up to the court. Uh, it was a nightmare. Um, but, but somehow I got through it because we finally got 
e-filing in the Michigan Court of Appeals sometime around, I think, 2008. But it wasn't until January of 2015 that the Michigan Supreme Court started effect, uh, accepting e-filing. So um, it, that's a relatively recent occurrence, and I, I sure am glad that it happened. Finally. Were you passing all those costs on to clients, or were you just absorbing them as a cost of doing business remotely? I was actually passing those costs along to, to clients. I think, however, because I teach law practice management, I've learned a bit, and I wouldn't do it the same way today. Yeah, um, I would set an hourly rate that was sufficient to cover um, those costs, or I would charge a flat fee sufficient to cover those costs, and I would not nickel and dime, um, or in this case, hundred of dollars, <laughs> uh, you know, to, uh, on the on the clients because I, I realize clients are sensitive to that. They're they're relatively less sensitive to charging, say, $300 an hour instead of $275 an hour mm -hmm. um, to absorb those costs. So that that's the way I would do it today if I still had that problem. So a lot of people wonder about how hard it is to make a virtual practice work, if you can make a reasonable salary and that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, you, you had a, it sounds like a reasonably successful practice when you were in Michigan. How do you think about whether it's been successful since then? Well, it's successful in the sense that I still like what I'm doing and I'm able to support my family. Um, you know, do I make as much money as I did when I was on the ground doing trial court work? Um, the answer is probably no. Um, but that's not really why I'm in the business. Um, I get a lot of interesting cases. Um, most family law cases never get to the highest appeal court in a state. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to have probably seven or eight um, full appeals in the Michigan Supreme Court that I've been able to argue there. And there are a lot of family law appellate attorneys who never get any. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to have interesting cases. And I had an advantage that a lot of people didn't have. Uh, I spent 22 years on the ground uh, practicing in the trial courts, made a lot of connections. I, I chaired the State Bar Family Law Section in Michigan uh, at, the, at the ripe young age of 30. Um, so I knew everybody. I'm a fellow of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. And as soon as I moved to Florida, um, people started calling me and said, can I send you an appeal? Is that because they don't want to, I mean, where do you, I'm, I'm curious how you how you get your cases. Um, you know, it, it hasn't been my experience that lawyers don't want to do appeals. Lots of lawyers are thrilled to get to the court of appeals when they have an opportunity. So I'm, I'm kind of curious where the appeals come from for you. Well, for me, nearly all of them do come directly from the trial court attorneys. Hmm. I get only a couple of cold calls from clients every year. I'm not even sure why I bother to maintain a website or be on social media um, because uh, my practice um, is entirely referrals from, from trial court lawyers. Well, I assume you keep in touch with those trial court lawyers on social media. I, I do. And the other thing I do is I try to keep my face in front of them. I'm a regular presence um, in Michigan at CLE presentations. I volunteer to present whenever I can. Uh, I attend even when I'm not presenting. Um, I uh, uh, try to get up there whenever I can to meet with lawyers. Um, it's, it's important, especially the lawyers who are newer, who are not part of the practicing bar, um, you know, more than 15 years ago when I was still up there. Um, so I need to make inroads with those lawyers uh, because many of the lawyers that, that I grew up with are getting near retirement age and are no longer referring me cases. So, Well, that's a good point. Um, How much longer do you plan to do this? Um, I actually can't see myself retiring. Hmm. There really is no impediment as long as I can think and type and get on an airplane to fly up for my oral arguments. Uh, I can continue doing this. 
So I don't really have any desire to quit. Very cool. So you said uh, there were a couple of other issues with going virtual uh, over the years. And uh, I think you mentioned insurance as one of the other ones. Yeah, that was a real surprise. Um, we we got down here in, in, in at the end of 2001. Um, my malpractice coverage through my former firm uh, lasted through the end of April of 2002. And then I was on my own and I had to start shopping for coverage. And I could not find a carrier that understood a virtual practice. Hmm. They said, okay, so what's your address? And I didn't maintain an office back in Michigan. It was a complete move to Florida. I give them my Florida address and they said, okay, what state are you licensed in? It must be Florida, right? And I said, no, I'm licensed in Michigan and only Michigan. And they said, well, I don't know how we could write a policy for somebody who lives in Florida, uses a Florida mailing address, but only practices in Michigan. Um, I finally got to the point where I was using my sister-in-law's address in Michigan as my mailing address for my malpractice policy. Um, but even that arrangement didn't last very long. Was that um, with their, did they know you were doing that or did you just decide, ah, screw it, I'm just going to do this and not tell them? I, I explained that um, to my uh, insurance broker. Um, I'm not sure how much the broker passed along to the carrier, <laughs> however. They just didn't understand the concept of a virtual practice, living in one state and practicing in another. I always thought that was odd because I've handled appellate cases um, you know, that, that came from, for example, Menominee, Michigan, and Marinette, Wisconsin is right across the river. Uh, and, and there were lawyers who practiced in Menominee but lived in Marinette, and they would have had the same issue. So I'm... I'm Maybe they sure just why. didn't tell their insurance carriers. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that could be. You know, one thing that's been nice, though, is as an appellate practitioner, um, I will say that uh, insurance rates are relatively low compared to other areas of legal practice. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. You can only do so much damage after the damage has already been done. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. Uh, it's another good <laughs> another uh, good thing about being an appellate practitioner is that a lot of the emotion has gone out of the case for the clients. Um, they've already gone through the uh, the trial. They've they've won or they've lost, um, depending on which side we're on. And uh, they get down to a, more of a, I guess, a rational, calmer perspective when they're dealing with uh, their appellate attorneys. Uh, I honestly have relatively little contact with my clients. There's the initial uh, consultation, maybe a few questions in the beginning, and then it might be one or two contacts a year. And is that over the phone or Skype or FaceTime, or do you meet them when you happen to be in Michigan? How do you manage those client meetings? Um, all of those have been part of my method of communicating with clients. I would say telephone is by far the most common, although actually Email is probably the most common. Yeah. Um, I, I explain to my clients that I can be a lot more efficient and respond to them much more quickly um, if they send me an email. Um, so I, I would think that 80, 90% of the time, my communication with clients is by email. Um, most of the rest is by telephone. Every now and then, I'll get a client who actually wants to see my face. Um, I'm not sure why. <laughs> Hmm. Having having a face made for radio, I'm not sure why, but they will make a request and we'll do we'll do a FaceTime or we'll do a Skype call, and uh, then they've seen me and once they've seen me once, that's enough. And from then on, it's email or it's telephone. I, does that go smmoothly for you generally? Yes, it does. I, I can say that in the 15, 16 years I've been doing this, I can only think of two clients who hesitated to hire me because they couldn't sit in a chair in the same room with me and, and discuss their case. Uh, everybody else has understood that um, appeals are a bit different. 
Uh, it's limited to the record at trial. There's nothing that they can tell me that isn't in the record that I could use anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, they they understand that um, I'm doing my work essentially in in isolation from the record. I will talk to them about you know which issues they think are important. I'll give them my opinion about which issues I think are viable. Um, but but beyond that, they seem to be perfectly fine with the relatively limited amount of contact we have. What about Skyping with them? Because, like, you know, I use Skype all the time. We're using it right now mm-hmm. to record this podcast. But, you know, like every time one of my kids want to Skype with their grandparents, uh, we spend about 10 minutes troubleshooting uh, because they can't seem to get the image to show up or their microphone got muted or their volume is turned down and they didn't really, you know, just all those little things. Uh, does that, when you when you have Skyped or FaceTimed with clients, do, do you have to overcome that or has it not really been an issue? Um, Skype has been a bigger issue than FaceTime. I would imagine. Yeah. FaceTime just seems to work no matter what device they're using, um, you know, whether it's an iPhone or an iPad. And I've recently switched from an Android phone to an iPhone, um, but I've had an iPad for years. I use that in court when I argue my cases. Um, mm. So, you know, I'm, I'm used to, to using that device. So the iOS as an operating system was always familiar uh, to me. Um, but, but Skype can be a bigger problem, especially if I'm working with a client who's trying to connect via Wi-Fi. Um, you, you quickly learn when you're using Skype that having a, an Ethernet, a wired connection uh, to the Internet is, is far superior. <laughs> um, Wi-Fi is, no matter how good you think your Wi-Fi connection is, it is inherently unreliable. I suppose that's probably true. I, I, I'm blessed with amazing Internet uh, in my house, at least, and it doesn't usually come up. But uh, at the office, when you're around a bunch of other Wi-Fi networks, totally gets messy. Yeah, when, whenever I uh, am tempted to use Wi-Fi, I, I don't. I've got a, a 50-foot Ethernet cable that will stretch to just about wherever I need it to go, and I plug it into my router and then to whatever computer or device that I'm using to do a <laughs> Skype call. If I decide I'm not going to do it in my office, if I'm going to do it in the kitchen or or uh, somewhere else, as long as it's within 50 feet, it's much better to be wired than wireless. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to hear more about your tech stack, because I think as a virtual lawyer, uh, people might have some expectations about what that means. And let's uh, let's take a look. And then I want to talk a little bit more about what the shifting way in which appellate practice is going to e-briefs. And I know that you've been doing some work on that and have lots of thoughts about it. And so uh, I'd like to chat about that. So we'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Spotlight Branding is an internet marketing company that doesn't suck. Most solo and small firm lawyers have had at least one truly miserable experience with a web designer or internet marketing company. So if the idea of launching a new website for your law firm makes you queasy, they get it. Spotlight Branding prides itself on excellent communication with its clients, being responsive, professional, respectful, and delivering what it tells you it's going to deliver. 
Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. Services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more, all designed to make your law practice more profitable. And Spotlight Branding is currently offering a free gift to our listeners. Simply text the word WEBSITE to 66866 and receive their free website appraisal worksheet, an easy way to evaluate your web presence, identify what's working, and spot opportunities to improve. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to modern life as a small firm lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. So, Scott, we've talked about insurance and e-filing and stuff. Uh, it, it just occurred to me on the break that uh, you may have run into the bona fide office rule. Uh, I think Florida might have one. And so I'm curious about how you resolve that before we get to the other stuff I mentioned. Yes, Florida does have one. Michigan does not. So uh, my, my state bar up in Michigan doesn't care where I live or whether I have an office or where it's located. But it was early December of 2013. My wife and I were getting ready to go to her office Christmas party. She actually works at the Manatee County Attorney's Office. That's the civil legal counsel for our our county government. And I went out to get the mail and there was a letter from the Florida Bar. Um, Any lawyer will tell you that anytime they get a letter from a bar association, it's not good news. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least it's scary. (laughs) Yeah. So I opened it up and, and the letter said, we understand that you're practicing Michigan law, but you live in Florida. We don't think you can do that. <laughs> so, you know, the first thing I did was find out, okay, who are the best, who's the best um, bar regulation lawyer in the Tampa Bay area, which is the area where I live. And I hired that person um, who, of course, used to work in, in inside the bar doing regulation of attorneys mm-hmm. and had him um, put together my response. And they took a look at it and they said, oh, okay, so... Your email and your website and everything says licensed in Michigan only, Michigan cases only. I guess we don't think there can be any confusion. Um, You don't really have an office and your bar doesn't require a bona fide office and you're not handling Florida cases or representing Florida clients. We think what you're doing is probably okay. So they closed the file. And I have been, you know, keeping my fingers crossed that I do nothing to uh, come to their attention again. Now, <laughs> not like this podcast. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> a couple of things have happened since then. The last couple of presidents of the Florida bar have been very tech savvy. And Florida is one of the few states that actually has mandatory CLE that includes a tech component. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic that 
I've weathered the worst of the storm and that they will at this point um, essentially leave me alone and recognize that I'm not doing anything that in any right. way uh, intrudes into into their sphere of, of regulation. So, uh, so tell us about the technology that you use to be a virtual appellate lawyer, because I think people are probably curious. Yes. Well, probably about five, six years ago, when the first, when the iPad 2s came out, I decided that I would you know, deviate from my Microsoft and Windows only practice. Although I did have a Chromebook actually at your recommendation. You may recall years ago you wrote about uh, Chromebooks. Yeah, I had one until I dropped it in a snowbank. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I, I happily used that as my primary portable computing device for a, a number of years until I ended up with a, a Microsoft Surface Book, um, which is what I use now. Um, but the iPad has been a big part of my my virtual practice because it's the way that I take all of my documents with me when I go to court. Um, in the early days, uh, before electronic filing um, and before all the judges were using iPads, the Michigan Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, all the judges are issued um, iPads, and that's what they use typically on the bench. Uh, that's also how they read briefs. Um, so I bought an iPad, too, and now I'm using a fourth-generation iPad, which in itself is getting pretty old. And all of my documents are on that, the entire case file. And I use a wonderful app called Oral Argument. Hmm. And it allows me to put together um, an outline of my arguments. Um, I can um, have little pop-up windows that will have quotes from uh, statutes, from court rules, from other cases. Um, it has a timer built into it. It has tabbed pages for each of the issues in my case. And that is what I use uh, during oral argument um, to present my case to the court. I walk, hmm. I, I fly up to Michigan and I walk into court without a single sheet of paper. Very interesting. I, uh, the, the last time I argued, I, I, I definitely still brought paper and I think I would still do that. But I have kept my case files on my iPad um, or on my laptop for a very long time. In fact, at one point, a bailiff told me to put my laptop away, and I said, "I I can't. This is my. These are my files." <laughs> so, so that uh, I haven't. I only experienced that once, but uh, uh, but I I hope that the uh, general mood in courts has changed since then. So I've been fortunate because um, from from day one, when I probably that would have been twenty eleven. Uh, in the fall of 2011, when I got the iPad 2 and started using it immediately, I uh, walked right into the Michigan Court of Appeals and started using it, and nobody said a thing. Uh, there, yeah. there were a couple <laughs> of other lawyers, um, one of my family law appellate colleagues, uh, who was doing the same thing at about the same time, and we still um, both do it the, the same way. And in several oral arguments in the Michigan Supreme Court, I have walked up with uh, either an iPad. Actually, I think the last time I used my uh, uh the detachable screen from my Surface Book mm -hmm. and, and use that um, as my tablet uh, for my oral argument. There is a uh, an app that comes with all of the Microsoft Surface devices. It's called Drawboard PDF. Mm. Drawboard PDF is very similar to um, GoodReader or iAnnotate on the iPad. It's basically a PDF annotation program. So you can use it the same way. Now, the only downside of the uh, detachable screen on the uh, 
on the Microsoft Surface Book is that it's got battery life of only about two hours, so it's not the 10 plus hours of an iPad. Uh, of course, that's more than enough to get you through any appellate argument. Um, so mm -hmm. for that reason, um, I've tended to switch back and forth uh, between the iPad and the Surface Book screen, um, but the iPad is smaller and lighter. I'm using the 9.7 inch, like I said, fourth generation iPad. I'm waiting to see the, the new iPad Pro. I think we're going to see a, a 10.5 inch iPad Pro released relatively soon, and that might be my time to upgrade to from the regular iPad to the iPad Pro. Yeah. Apart from iPads and iPad apps, do you use any special software on your laptop? Or are, I imagine you're drafting briefs in Microsoft Word and um, and you, you obviously use email. Um, is there anything else that really you couldn't practice without? Yes, there are two programs. They're both Word plugins. Um, I use WordBreak and Perfectit. And all of my briefs, basically everything I file uh, with the appellate courts, will will go through WordRake and perfect it um, before they get filed. Um, the two are uh, have different purposes. Um, WordRake is basically a style checker. Um, what it tries to do is is make you write like Hemingway. Um, short, concise sentences, um, uh, no passive tense, and it absolutely hates the word that. <laughs> so do I. So it, I'm taking that out of my briefs whenever I run through uh, uh, run through them with with WordRake, and then perfect it um, is like proofreading on steroids. Um, it it catches errors and inconsistencies that the built-in spelling and grammar checker in Word would never catch. Um, hmm. If you're inconsistent in capitalization or use of punctuation, uh, use of hyphens, um, inconsistent in the spelling of a particular term, um, perfect it will pick that up. And you can either change all instances in the brief or it'll let you go through it one by one. Um, for example, I might sometimes in a brief intentionally capitalize the word court in some places and not capitalize it in others, depending on which court I'm referring to. So it'll give me the option to go through one by one and decide which one of those I want to change. Um, of course, that's far more sophisticated than what Microsoft Word can provide. Yeah. Um, I'm also a big OneDrive user. I keep everything uh, on OneDrive. Um, I, my, my copy of word comes from office 365. So I've got, uh, the ability to use word, uh, on my iPad, on my surface book. Um, I use it, I use the Android version on the Chromebook that I still have. Um, because I've got one of the few Chromebooks that's currently running Android apps. It's the, the Asus Chromebook flip, mm -hmm. the, uh, small, relatively small 10.1 inch screen. Those are really the, the, the that's the software that, that makes things go round. From a management perspective, I still use a locally installed copy of PC Law. I have often thought that, hey, I'm a virtual lawyer. I ought to be in the cloud for my time billing, accounting, and practice management. Um, what I haven't found yet is a cloud-based system that's been around long enough that I'm satisfied with that will do accounting the way I want it done. Well, that's uh, a, that is a common sentiment among PC law users for sure. So, do you have a favorite font? <laughs> yeah. Um, You're an appellate lawyer. Appellate lawyers have strong opinions about fonts, so I always got to ask. We, we do. In fact, one of the first encounters you and I had was an argument over fonts in appellate briefs. I assume you were wrong. Um, so. yeah, actually, I can, con <laughs> I can concede that I was wrong. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, I, I keep close to me a copy of Matthew Butterick's 
typography for lawyers book. Yep. Um, in fact, I've got the first edition. I want to go out and get the second one. It's been revised. <laughs> um, he recommended a couple of fonts that are downloadable for free. Um, Charter is a serif font, and I use Charter in all my appellate briefs now. And he recommended Cooper Hewitt, which is a sans serif font. And I use that for my headings in my appeal briefs. Um, they're both free. Uh, and I have downloaded them and installed them on on my desktop computer and on my Surface Book. Oh, nice. Uh, I suppose you can't use those on your Chromebook, though, right? I cannot use them on the Chromebook, no, un- unfortunately. Um, and, and I can't use them on, on the iPad when I'm using the, uh, the iOS version of, of Microsoft Office. Au contraire. Um, there's a great app, really? uh, called, um, oh, it's a, I can't remember what it's called now. It's, but it's a font app that allows you to add fonts to your iPad or your iPhone or your iOS devices. Wow. Yes. It's, <laughs> uh, it was transformative for me because I, we use, we actually use Butterix fonts for a lot of our lawyerist stuff. Um, everything on the site is in, in Butterix equity font or in his, oh, I'm forgetting the, the name of his, uh, he, we, he uses a monospace font and a sans serif font for our headings. Um, but so I've um, added all of those to my iPad. So now I can draft in beautiful Butterick fonts on my iPad, which is awesome. This is great. I learned something um, that will be very I, valuable to me because <laughs> when I get that new iPad Pro, then maybe I can do a lot of my work just on my iPad and, and can skip the Windows computers altogether. Well, for those listening, I will name that app and put the link to it on there so that you too can have the fonts you love on your iOS devices, but uh, but obviously not for your Chromebook. So, Scott, uh, you you mentioned that uh, Michigan Court of Appel- Appeals judges, and I assume Supreme Court judges, are issued iPads as part of their own technology stack, which makes me think they must be reading briefs on iPads. I- I've been following uh, for years because I, I do appeals and motion practice is my favorite part of law practice, and it's one of the things that I still do. And, you know, uh, Garner set the the world of legal writing on fire by suggesting that all citations should be in footnotes. And there was yeah, that was hotly debated for a while. And I, it's my my impression that eBriefs has kind of settled that argument and that he has lost because flipping back and forth from footnotes to the body text is really hard when you're reading a brief on an iPad. Um, but I'm wondering uh, if I'm right about that, but also what are some of the other considerations that we should think about when we are drafting briefs to be read on a tablet and what is the distinction between that and an actual e-brief let's dive in yeah i i would like to give myself credit for being a visionary i was always a dissenter from brian garner's view on on footnotes i never used footnotes for citations and as have as things have developed um with electronic briefing and you're right uh, footnotes are very difficult to use um if a judge is reading your brief uh, on an ipad um so what happened um last year in november the American Bar Association Council of Appellate Lawyers issued a, a fantastic report um, with recommendations for um, electronic briefing, for e-briefing, how to improve readability, and also some other things about you know, how the brief should be processed once they get to the court level. But I, I want to talk more about the, the, the briefing uh, itself. What, what Michigan does now, unfortunately, is we have, well, I think one of the few states that still have this, we have a page limit for our appellate briefs, 50 pages. Um, unlike the federal system in most other states, which do it by word yeah. uh, and by word count. And, and, it, and if people it, don't appreciate the difference, there's no good reason to have a page limit because it 
it, it gets ridiculous. You you want to use different fonts, and different fonts have different lengths, and page limits are just silly. You should be using word limits. Exactly, and and it encourages bad behavior by appellate lawyers, including me sometimes. Um, if I have, you know, if I want to be too lazy and and not edit the brief the way it should be properly edited, and I'm at fifty two pages, and I'm using Charter, all I have to do is switch to Times New Roman. Um, Please forgive me for doing that. <laughs> and uh, I was scowling, I but you can't hear that. So. Yeah, I know. And all of a sudden, it's a forty-eight page brief, and I'm under the I'm under the fifty page limit. Um, or the or the one that just became an issue, I think, in the last couple of weeks, where um, lawyers were sanctioned for turning in a brief that used um, double spacing according to the typographically correct definition, but not the commonly used definition because Word doesn't actually double space when you select double spacing. And so the lawyer, uh, Word adds extra spacing. And uh, so let's say you're using 20 point font, double spacing would mean 40 point line height. That's the typographer's definition of it. But Word actually makes it say like 20, uh, you know, a double spacing would be um, for 20 point font would be uh, 44 point line spacing, let's say. And that's what the courts mean when they say that it must be double spaced. And so a lawyer got sanctioned for doing it correctly, according to typographers, but incorrectly, according to Microsoft Word. And that's some serious bullshit all around right there. Yeah. And the typographers, <laughs> the typographers are right. Uh, Word is wrong and the courts are wrong. Yeah. And that's actually one of the recommendations uh, from the uh, Council of Appellate Lawyers is to get rid of the standard uh, double spacing. Yeah. Um, apparently, from a readability perspective, um, the spacing should be somewhere between 120% and 140%. Yeah, 1.2 to 1.4. Of, of yeah, of the height of the of the uh, font that you're using, and it, there's no reason to go with with double spacing. Um, but you can see the the issue that that would present if you were going by page count instead of word count. Right. Um, so we are working on. I'm, I'm uh, chair of a, of the ad hoc e-briefing committee for the uh, uh, State Bar of Michigan Appellate Practice section, and we are working on what will hopefully be a court rule amendment proposal to implement a lot of these changes, which would be going to uh, word count, uh, eliminating double spacing. Um, I think we're going to require um, uh, serif fonts uh, uh, in, in the body of the brief, uh, not in the headings. Um, you, should get, we, you should include examples other than Times New Roman because lawyers are afraid to deviate from any examples given. Right. We want to do a set of best practices that will go along with uh, the rule amendment, uh, and, and that will include a set of uh, recommended fonts. Nice. Um, the Michigan Attorney General's office uses um, Century Schoolbook as as their standard font, um, which is you know probably twenty five percent larger than Times New Roman. Um, <laughs> so under the current court rules, they're doing themselves somewhat of a disservice by limiting the length of their of their briefs, but they've decided that they'd rather have their briefs readable to the appellate judges who are reading on <laughs> on on their iPads. I mean, uh, you know, it's one thing you think, okay, if I can write longer, I can be more persuasive. Well, you're not very persuasive if your brief is just so painful to read because it's in 12-point Times New Roman on an iPad screen. Uh, that's not the way you want to do it. Well, and let's just be clear that Longer is never more persuasive. That's also true. <laughs> That's just not the way it works. <laughs> and, and among the things that we've been looking at are different formatting for um, e-briefs. Um, a true e-brief would not look a whole lot like a paper e-brief. A paper brief would look. Mm -hmm. um, 
a true e-brief would would uh, make um, a lot of use of white space. It would use a lot of bullet points. Um, it might have embedded images. It would have uh, embedded links. Um, those things very rarely appear in a – well, it wouldn't appear in a paper brief. You're not going to have uh, embedded links. Uh, you're just going to have uh, typed out URLs. It, it would look more like a page on a website might look, it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, every three years, there is a – Appellate Bench Bar Conference in Michigan. Um, it's it's co-sponsored by a foundation that we have there, um, by the courts, and also by the appellate practice section of the state bar. And um, we have both of the last two uh, bench bar conferences, we've had presentations on electronic briefing and what an e-brief would look like. And a colleague of mine who does primarily criminal appeals, his name is Stuart Friedman, actually drafted a brief that looked like a web page. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was fascinating to see, and it was entirely different than what we're used to seeing on paper. So we need lawyers doing appellate work need to shift their mindset away from, okay, we're trying to replicate a paper brief, but we're simply e-filing it, which really doesn't do us any good. Mm -hmm. Or we're trying to create a whole new format that will be more persuasive because it looks like what people are used to seeing online on web pages. And it'll be easier to read, easier to follow, and will be more persuasive. Uh, and I, it's going to take a long time to get over that hurdle. Um, we may have to have a whole generational change uh, among appellate lawyers, but we'll get there. Well, and give, given what most lawyers' websites look like right now, the idea of telling them to build briefs that look like websites when many lawyers still aren't even very good at constructing good-looking briefs uh, is somewhat terrifying to me, actually. <laughs> it is. Um, among the things we want to do, though, to make it easier for courts to read is, um, and this is one of the recommendations uh, from the Council of Appellate Lawyers, is to allow filing of a fixed format brief, which would be your standard PDF brief, but also allow the filing of a brief that can be reformatted by the court to suit their needs, which would be typically either an HTML brief or possibly even a brief in Microsoft Word format. Um, I've well, checked. I suppose even if, uh, you know, even if you're not going to do a fancy, you know, designy uh, argument in HTML format, just PDFs are a pain in the ass to read on a tablet. You, they don't reflow the text. You can't make it bigger or smaller. It's just, it's like reading one page at a time and the text is small. So it's, it's when we, when you talk about formatting briefs for a tablet, part of it is like, if you have to turn it in a PDF, there are some things that you might want to do with it to make it not suck for the judge to read and just allowing people to turn in briefs in a more flexible format would get around a lot of those problems. It, it would. Um, and not having things like page limits instead of word limits, um, not having strict mm -hmm. margin limits, for example, um, yeah, you know, uh, paragraph uh, spacing, all of those things can be altered to make a brief more readable in PDF format. Um, but probably would violate many of the existing rules we have to work under. Yeah, no, it's that it's and it's interesting. I I would love to give lawyers the tools and and permission, uh, official permission to experiment a little bit. Um and you know, it's kind of on their head if they screw it up, but uh you know, the iPad and Android tablets are very well established formats. Um it's it and HTML has been around forever. Uh, that's a good one to go with. Like it's it's not that scary to try and submit something in a different format. Uh, and I'd love to see some lawyers try. It'd be kind of cool. Well, if we can get the rules amended in Michigan, um, I may be among the first that will have a chance to try that. Um, I'm looking forward to the opportunity, certainly. Yeah, we'll, we'll hope for an update on lawyers if we see that. 
Um, Scott, thanks so much for being with us today and for chatting about e-filing and going virtual and uh, and e-briefing. It was fascinating, and I love geeking out on fonts uh, as always. <laughs> and thank you, thank you for letting me be be uh, or at least saying that I was right about our argument about it. <laughs> well, what you were right about is I, I was using Tahoma. Um, in my briefs, which is a sans serif font, and uh, you got you got all over me about that. Um, <laughs> I bet I did. Then, then I suggested Verdana as an alternative. Oh no! And, uh, and and you were you were equally unhappy, if not if not more so. So our oh, that was that was I think wow. our first encounter. It was I think it was via email, um, and uh, and uh, our, our more recent encounters have been a lot more pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad I make a negative first impression, but you stuck around. Um, and by the way, um, uh, thanks for sticking us with us to the end, because while uh, we were talking, I checked it out. And that font I mentioned that allows you to put any font you want to on your iOS device is called any font. Um, I think it's three or four dollars. And it made me so, so happy to be able to do that. So um, check that out. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, Scott, once again, thank you so much for being with us. Um, and I hope to see you again soon. All right. Thanks, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.